good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's That's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got a band that joins the big noise with the big melodies, parts and labor. Plus, we've got a trio of posthumous releases from Elliot Smith, Jeff Buckley, and Nick Drake, and the newest from the controversial king of R&B, R. Kelly. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Big news in the digital world, folks. Amazon.com says it's going to take on Apple's iTunes store by the end of the year. Uh, It is going to create a digital music download store with millions of songs from more than 12,000 record labels. The big news here is that Amazon is going to make every song and every album available in its digital store free of digital rights management restrictions. That means you're going to be able to play these songs on any type of digital audio player. You're going to be able to share them as many times as you want. Steve Jobs of Apple a few months ago called on the record company saying, make this stuff available as widely as possible. Don't put these restrictions on it. He is rolling out a program of uh, digital rights-free songs on iTunes, but he's going to charge more for it, $1.29 per download as opposed to $0.99 per download. And I think the key point here, Jim, is where is Amazon.com going to come in price-wise on this? Are they going to undersell iTunes and come in at less than $0.99 per song in addition to offering these digital rights-free uh, songs, this which, is, which would be very attractive. It's so chronically screwed up, Greg. A dollar a track makes sense. Upping the price, they're going to spite themselves online the same way they did in brick-and-mortar stores. And here we are talking in Chicago, a couple blocks away from one of the biggest Virgin Mega stores, just closed this week. Right. No more record stores, kids. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a flirt. Soon as I see you walk up in the club, I'm a flirt. Winking eyes at me when I roll up on them dubs, I'm a flirt. Sometimes when I'm with my chick on the low, I'm a flirt. And when she's with a man looking at me damn right, I'm a flirt. So homie, don't bring your girl to meet me, cause I'm a flirt. And baby, don't bring your girlfriend to eat, cause I'm a flirt. Please believe it unless your game is tight and you trust her. That's I'm a Flirt from R. Kelly, his 11th studio album, Double Up. In that song, he talks about, I'm the king of R&B. That's why it's okay for me to go around flirting with other guys' girls. And, uh, you know, braggadocio or not, the guy probably is the king of R&B, let's face it. For the last 15 years, as a singer, songwriter, producer, triple threat, nobody can really touch this guy in the R&B field. He sold tens of millions of albums. At the same time, there is this cloud hanging over R. Kelly, which my colleague here, uh, Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times, has played a role in. He uh, is investigative reporting into R. Kelly's activities off the stage, outside of the studio, in child pornography, have been well documented in the Chicago Sun-Times and other national publications. 
Kelly has been indicted on child pornography charges and has been awaiting trial for about five years on It'll those charges. It'll be five years on June 5th, yeah. Meanwhile, continues to make records, has been putting out albums at about a, an album a year pace, really prolific. Those records consistently sell millions of copies. Eight million records, Greg, he's sold since June 2002 when he was indicted. So clearly, Jim, there's a disconnect between Kelly, the best-selling R&B artist, and Kelly, the persona, the man who's indicted for child pornography. But there's a blurring of some of those boundaries, as we're going to find out here in a second. We're going to talk about Double Up and what's on this record, but let's play a track first before we get into the actual contents of this record. It's called The Zoo from R. Kelly on Sound Opinions. I want to see, want to feel, want to touch, I want to kiss, I want to free, Wanna say it's nothing like it's like a jungle atmosphere and real two monkeys, baby. It's like we're on a vine, the way we're swinging it, baby. See, you're a tiger girl, the way you're scratching me. I'm a lion in this jungle, I'm a king. Girl, I got your soul down. It's like a rainforest, like Jurassic Park, except I'm your sexosaurus, babe. You and me hopping like two kangaroos, rattling and moaning out here in these woods. Those are the sounds I want to hear when you're moaning in my ear. Girl, you're singing to me. You got me locked up in your cage of ecstasy, and I don't want to be free. Cause it's wild like a zoo, and that's the way I like it, baby. Crazy me and you, making love like we was just two heated animals. Baby, come and lay with me in my jungle Ooh, it's where I'm about to go Turn your body around and beat the skins like it's a bongo A thousand birds about the tree Girl, like a swarm of bees That is how it's gonna be Climaxing you and me Touch the root of your soul Let mother nature take control Over us is rain and leaves So come on, girl, let's plant these seeds, yeah Baby, those are the sounds I want to hear When you're moaning in my ear singing You got me locked up in your cage of ecstasy And I don't want to be free Cause wild like a zoo And that's the way I like it, baby Crazy Making love like we was just two animals Baby, won't you come and lay in my jungle that is a little bit of a track called The Zoo from R. Kelly's 11th album, Double Up. Uh, he's been playing that in concert for years, Greg. Uh, he climbs around in uh, jungle pajamas in a cage with two dancers while performing it. <laughs> it is tempting to laugh at some of those lines. It's like Jurassic Park, I'm your sexosaurus. I have a very hard time laughing about it. I have a very hard time acting as a critic when talking about Robert Sylvester Kelly, a uh, 40-year-old phenomenon from Chicago. This guy is the most popular artist Chicago has put out since Curtis Mayfield. He's a force in popular music today, undeniable, somewhere up around 50 million albums total. Eight million of those sold since he was indicted in June 2002 because of a story I worked on. It is impossible, I contend, to listen to this album, Double Up, without thinking about the crimes which R. Kelly is accused of. You know, Double Up refers to arranging a menage a trois. Fully five or six songs on this album reference setting up having sex with two women or more at one time. Kelly was the subject of several civil lawsuits by underage girls who sued him. Those lawsuits contended that he would arrange trios, uh, sexual encounters with 
more than one underage girl at a time. He settled those by paying those women off out of court. Again, he's waiting to face the charges of uh, taping himself having sex, allegedly, with an underage girl. That may finally start that trial in the fall. It's taken five years. That's a very long time. He's put out six studio albums in that time. And on all of them, to varying degrees, he has commented about the charges against him. Double Up, I think, takes it to a new level because he opens with this track called The Champ, which is he's saying, I'm the king of R&B. Nobody's come near me. He recently gave an interview comparing himself to Martin Luther King, Bob Marley, to Marvin Gaye, and Muhammad Ali, saying he was the equal of those greats today. And then he goes on to talk about the charges against him. Uh, listen to this. I'm opposite of the demon that faces me. I've been through hell, lived in the belly of the beast. I confess my sins, but still didn't find peace. But like MJ and Five, I will six peak. For the record, Kelly has always maintained his innocence. He has never confessed to anything, as far as I know. I don't know what sins he's talking about in that passage confessing to. There's another track called Best Friend, in which he imagines himself doing 10 to 15 years in prison on an unspecified crime. Again, Greg, sex is never far from Kelly's mind. It permeates and saturates every song on this album. Billboard says that uh, I'm a Flirt may well be the single of the summer. You can hear it as a very innocent, flirtatious kind of song, or you can hear it as listen to the way this man talks about women. The Sun-Times has always used the language that, that it is not one incident on videotape. It is a pattern of abusing his position of wealth and power to have sexual relationships with underage girls, according to lawsuits and according to charges against him. It's a sad and pathetic thing that he has sold so many records while basically bragging about this behavior. Well, you know, what's interesting to me about Kelly, and having seen him in concert really brought it home to me, there's a segment of his audience, and he has a very large audience, that is laughing at a lot of the stuff that he's talking about in these songs because it's so outrageous. I mean, he deals in sort of this comic absurdity in a way. They, they almost see it like this is just such a way out fantasy that he's talking about here, this titillation, uh, that they're sort of reveling in the outrageousness of it all. And he's sort of winking at him too, sort of saying, man, I'm, ain't, ain't yeah. I a freak? I am the ultimate freak. And, and for a while there, you could almost buy into it, knowing nothing about what his real life is all about. You, you look at these songs and they go, you know, for what they are, he does this kind of thing really well. I mean, he's an incredibly gifted producer. He's developed this very sparse rhythmic attack. Uh, you know, we talked about, we've complained about how R&B has gotten become all lush and mechanized. This guy's really stripped it down to its essence and over the top laid these gospel vocals. I mean, the guy, you know, it's hard to believe, but the guy grew up in church. You know, he's, there, he's singing in, in church choirs. But what I'm hearing in this record, Jim, in particular is that the absurdity and the, and the sort of the, the high comedy of it has sort of gotten a, a mean little twist to it in that song, Real Talk, where he's talking wow. with the woman who's now accusing him of cheating. And instead of fessing up to it, he starts berating her with insults and becomes more and more animated and, 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 and starts uh, swearing at her. It's hateful, it, it's, it's hateful ugly violent, stuff. and disturbing. Ugly that song, stuff. For sure. Real talk, always accusing me of some old bullshit. When I'm just trying to have a good time Robert, you did this Kills, I heard you did that Don't you think I got enough bullshit on my mind Real talk 
hold up. You know, Greg, I can't in good conscience rate this because I've been a reporter and not a critic. I contend that it would be like an art critic judging the jailhouse paintings of John Wayne Gacy <laughs> only on the, the, the merits of the art. Kelly is, is accused of these crimes. He has not been convicted. He allegedly committed them. He maintains his innocence. He'll have his day in court. But I think until he does, it is very difficult when he I'm not inserting this in his music. He's the one talking about his innocence and his right to have sex with whomever he pleases and his freakiness. I can't hear it as art. I just, we're, I'm dealing with it as news. You know, the history of popular music, if we look at the history of popular music, people who have been indicted, who have been put in jail, who have been accused of heinous activities, I'm thinking of people anywhere like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, all of whom had well-documented flirtations with underage women. You think about people like Chuck Berry and James Brown, who got put in jail for activities that weren't exactly exemplary, yet were still able to make great art. I feel as a, as a critic, I've got to be able to separate the two. And it's very difficult in the case of R. Kelly, there's no doubt about it. Musically, this record feels a little played out to me. Regardless of what he's done, it, it, it does not feel like one of the better R. Kelly records. I think that mean-spirited lyrics in some of these songs give it an ugly twist that I don't like either. He's a major, major artist, and people may want to sample a few of these tracks to see what it's all about, but he's done much better work on his earlier albums. I think this is actually one of the worst R. Kelly records. I don't think he's up, he's, he's anywhere near the top of his game on this record, so I'm going to have to say trash it. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. The music you're hearing right now, that great music you're hearing right now, is the great divide uh, from a band called Parts and Labor. We're about to go in the studio with them for an interview and a live performance. They're on their third album called Matt Maker, just out. Brooklyn, New York trio that literally shook the walls in here, Jim. Uh, (laughs) One of the very loudest bands we've ever had in here, and I think one of the most unique in terms of the way they approach their instrumentation and the way they play these instruments. Our CPR colleagues were running for cover, but (laughs) you and I were glorying in it, and I hope the listeners will as well. We're here in the studio with the band Parts and Labor, New York City Trio, B.J. Warshaw, Dan Friel, and drummer Christopher Weingarten. And gentlemen, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. And you have brought all sorts of fun gizmos and gadgets. I've never seen (laughs) such a menagerie of instruments all piled up on this table. It looks like you could buy those at a thrift store for the combined total of uh, $400 or $500 maybe. I don't know. Probably a lot more than that. The most expensive pedal I've got on my table is that Line 6 Delay, which, you know, runs about $200 on eBay. Everything else is probably collectively around $150. I love it because for people who have not heard Parts and Labor, They are one of the few bands in the history of this fine radio station, WBEZ, on Navy Pier here in Chicago, that has gotten the... uh the WBEZ warning letter sent to all the employees <laughs> uh, the day beforehand. This is going to be very loud. It's stationwide email. Yes. Gonna, warning. Be There's prepared. Be, yeah. Parts and labor are coming. Very loud rock band. <laughs> like they'd prep people for an eclipse or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Parts and labor, uh, now with their third album about to come out, it's called Map Maker. The album that they put out last year, Stay Afraid, I think one of the very best rock albums, Jim, of the last four or five years, uh, without a doubt, was one of my favorite records of last year. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna show all my cards completely, but I will say that I think Mapmaker is every bit as good, if not better, than that record. If you like rock music, 
you have to like this band. I'm just going to say it <laughs> flat You're out. You're all over it. Look at I'm this. All yeah. over it. I am all over it. I Absolutely. think we should have them play a song, and then we can get into the, yeah. their story. And and uh, you know, having built them up like that, yeah. Greg, they what better they better be good. Right you better be better good. deliver. I mean, no pressure on these guys, right? <laughs> exactly. What are you guys going to play? We're going to play a song called New Buildings, which is off of Stay Afraid, the record that came out last year. Excellent. Parts and Labor, New Buildings on Sound Opinions. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, more of Parts and Labor in the studio, and later, the new posthumous releases from Jeff Buckley, Nick Drake, and Elliot Smith.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We continue our discussion with Brooklyn noise rockers, parts, and labor. I asked them about how their band defies the normal guitar rock conventions. It's not a guitar heroics band. But nothing sounds like, uh, you know, bass doesn't sound like a bass. The guitar doesn't sound like a guitar when you play it. The keyboards sound like they're from another planet. But Chris is playing good old-fashioned drums, no electronics. Is that the one concession to the kind of organic... <laughs> it's actually kind of important to have the drums holding it down a bit and being, you know, the anchor amongst all the chaos. Um, Chris is actually pretty particular about playing a kind of traditional kit underneath all of the electronics and noises and delay that we put over everything. Oh, it's, it's interesting because, Chris, you're, you're a writer for The Voice and you do some criticism. And The Voice had this, uh, Village Voice had this kind of a crusade, I guess it's about five or ten years ago now, where, you know, nothing new or original or worthwhile can be done anymore with guitar, bass, and most of all, drums. You know, it's all been done. Everything that could be done by a rock band has been done. And I, and I know that that sort of has waned in recent years, but there is that notion among among some musicians that, you know, the, the time of the uh, the unplugged-in drum set is, is over. Uh, the thing I really liked about these guys, I was a fan of this band for about two years before I even joined it, but the, the, the thing I really liked the most about them was that I thought they were doing something totally new with the rock format and something totally different, so it's why they sort of appealed to me from the get-go. I also kind of think that anytime anybody says that it's not possible to do anything new with this instrumentation or with these musical instruments, that's the time for someone to step up to the plate. So you take that as a challenge, Absolutely, absolutely. I think every musician and creative person should. You know, there's plenty of new ways to use traditional instruments and plenty of ways to make new instruments sound traditional. Like I, li I like a lot of electronic music that sounds acoustic in the same way and mm -hmm. kind of goes the other way. Mm -hmm. The thing I really liked about these guys when I first saw them was I sort of imagined the lineup as it, it, it could have been like an SST band in 1984 could have done this exact same thing with the toy keyboards at the time. They just didn't. So you're thinking of bands like Husker Du or the Minutemen who you guys cover. Sure, and there's a continuity there. And also, you know, we're playing some toy keyboards that are from the 80s. You know, theoretically, they could have been doing some of the things that we're doing, but... Well, it, it's interesting because, you, you know, those are sounds that are on the record, and it's very hard to identify what is making what sound. Did, what came first, sort of the concept, okay, we, we want to sort of blur these ideas together, or did you just happen to have these toy instruments and these little cheap gadgets around and say well let's let's see what kind of noise we can make with these things yeah well i had a moment about six years ago where i got sick of playing guitar and i pulled that keyboard out of the closet it was my first instrument i got it when i was eight <laughs> and i just plugged it into all the pedals that i was running through my, my guitar through and figured i might be able to do something that didn't sound like all exactly like all of the bands i like because otherwise i would just be in a sonic youth cover band or something <laughs> right now um and then i you know i was just like this light bulb went on and i was like this sounds awesome it doesn't quite sound like a guitar band why don't I try and do things like you know Sonic Youth, Husker Du, The X, all these influences using this as sort of like the lead you know instead of guitar. Uh, Dan describe the instrument you just are talking oh, yeah. about. It's a Yamaha Portasound toy keyboard um, they came out in like 1984 this particular model uh, you can get them on eBay for about 20 bucks like I said before <laughs> it's like uh, you know two feet wide and one foot deep it's got a lot of you know settings like bossa nova and like sounds that say <laughs> things like cosmic and uh, this sort of synthesizer function that's supposed to allow you to build sounds but really just kind of makes them sound worse but that's what I use to do a lot of my tricks. 
So you guys met. You were working at the Knitting Factory, which is on the you know bastion of New York experimental yep. music. Yep. What did you guys do there? We started right around the same time. I was working for Knitting Factory Records, hypothetically booking tours for their new signees, which was my total college dream job at the time. And PJ? Yeah. I started out as the receptionist in the office. and then Wow. Actually, I started out as an intern there and was working for a couple of weeks. The receptionist quit, and I jumped on the chance to work horribly underpaid and terribly long hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. Eventually moved over to the record label, and yeah. Now, you guys had been uh, in bands and had obviously in the middle of a New York City scene. That's got to be a little bit daunting. You see all these great bands coming through Knitting Factory doing amazing things, doing experimental things. And at some point you say, how do we fit in with that or how do we differentiate ourselves from that? Kind how do of the we... funny part about yeah. that is, I mean, Dan and I had been playing in a bunch of improv and noisy bands for a while, just like unnamed bands and fooling around. And we, we had become fast friends over a share of similar, a shared love of similar music. We went to see a show together and the band will go unnamed, but we were kind of <laughs> watching them and we're like, we can do that. <laughs> like pretty simply and kind of like formed parts and later pretty soon. But, you know, the, the one thing that I think is at the heart of what you guys do, I mean, we talk about this kind of maybe gimmicky aspect of it, even though it's this huge rock sound that you guys generate. A- at the core of it, there's still these amazing melodies. I mean, it seems like there's an experimental element as well, but it's still grounded, uh, you know, Chris's drums and, and those big melodies. Yeah, that kind of was there from the beginning of Dan's solo material. Um, there was always just this kind of anthemic and nostalgic quality to the melodies that he was creating with the keyboards. And it also comes from... Sonic Youth is a really good example of a band that was has these big anthemic melodies, but also moments of just like harsh noise and dissonance and kind of likes to ride that line. I think it's really just a product of the music that we like the most. And it seems like the noise rock underground really lost the plot for, for much of the 90s, getting away from those melodies that, that characterized the music all through the 80s. You mentioned Who's Do before and sure. the Minutemen and Mission of Burma. I mean, these were bands that always, but they always had songs along with the noise. Sure. And then, I mean, you had like Nirvana that was doing the big melodies, but then there's, I guess it kind of like got reactionary. You also had uh, bands like Jesus Lizard that were very dissonant and shouty over everything. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear another one. What are you going to play for us next? Uh, this is a song called Death. Uh, speaking of decay, this is a song about a guy we met in a rest stop who he was in Idaho and told us, told BJ kind of randomly that he... Uh, his doctor had told him he had holes developing in his brain and he couldn't remember where he was going, but he was trying to leave Idaho. Yeah, he was <laughs> driving like this big mobile home, but he didn't have any money, so he would like save up enough money to get gas to go to a home that he couldn't remember where it was and would drive 50 miles on the highway and then realize he only had enough gas to get back to Boise and had been doing this for a while. You guys are making this wow. up. <laughs> Not this is the sort of thing that, this is that when New Yorkers leave New York, when they get out of Brooklyn, they make up, they, they, yeah. Come on, you've never even been to Idaho. It's actually not the only we left New York and things got crazy song we have, but. <laughs>
All right, that's Death from Parts and Labor, a happy song. <laughs> About Idaho. <laughs> These guys write songs that, uh, as we said earlier, anthemic quality to them. Do the lyrics come part and parcel with the music, or are, are you guys jotting things down in notebooks and then bringing them in, into the recording sessions? How, do, how does it work with that? Kind the... of all of the above. With, mostly with my songs, I usually come up with a melody first and then work to find um, lyrics to the melody. But I also have plenty of just free automatic writing and notes and journal entries and things that I'm pulling from and short sketches and phrases that I'll incorporate later on. But I think what's cool about your music is that I think if you stripped these songs down to a voice and a guitar singing these words, there would be a lot of power there still. Obviously, there's some thought put into these words. It's not just the physical nature of this big rush of sound. And that's happened some nights when the keyboard's broke. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a guy alone on a stage with a notebook (laughs) reciting poetry a la Henry Rollins or something. But uh, I hope the lyrics hold up to a quieter version of these songs. You know, the, the lyric writing is actually... For me, is the most challenging part of what we do, and I'm kind of the most critical about the words that I choose and spend the most time rewriting and revising lyrics. Well, you mentioned the Jesus Lizard before. I think for a long time in recent years, noisier rock, more experimental rock, avant-garde rock, the, the lyrics didn't matter. Sure, and we, I mean, I listened to a lot of boredoms and like mm-hmm. early right. on in their career, like they didn't even have lyrics, they were just grunting and screaming. And what's um, there is sort of in Japanese, so you, you wouldn't know anyway. Sure, or mangled English, and you know, it was, but I also listened to a lot of Fugazi growing up and a lot of kind of like straightforward, mm. um, politically and personally driven lyrical content, and I wouldn't quite feel right just kind of like blurting things out. And, there was a bit of a little bit of a mission when we started out when we first formed the band. Me and BJ were going to a lot of protests, going down to DC a lot, and uh, it was just what was on our mind a lot when we first started to write lyrics for the band. So definitely a lot of the you know state of the world stuff um, was sort of where we started from, and we're actually just now starting to like veer off into other things, into personal and you know guys in Idaho and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. You guys are on signed to Jag Jaguar, but you have your own uh, label, Cardboard Records, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Why, why get in the record business at this point? <laughs> We've been asking ourselves that since we started. We felt that we weren't really losing enough money yet. Um, well, we just, you know, we, we toured a lot and we played a lot of shows and we met a lot of bands that we really loved and just thought it would be, you know, really wanted to put out records for some of them and just, you know, and I don't know. You just see a band and they don't have a record out and you want to make that happen. Has it been a worthwhile endeavor? Absolutely. I think I think maybe the best example of, of sort of why and why we're doing it and how stupid we're getting about it is uh, this two CD compilation that we're going to be putting out in the fall that has 58 bands on it. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a 58 alphabetically ordered uh, <laughs> band <laughs> compilation of just, you know, bands we've met and like, you know, there's a lot of New York, obviously, but there's also bands from Australia and the UK and Texas. You know, Everywhere in the United States. And then the, the, the real kicker is the, it's going to be all these tracks that are then going to be remixed into one song by uh, Greg Gillis from Girl Talk and Frank <laughs> wow. from Hearts of Darknesses. Uh, they've got a new remix project called Trey Told Em. And they're going to take all the 57 previous tracks and make one three-minute jam out of that. Can you guys play us another song?
Good stuff, fellas. The gold we're digging. We're here in the studio with parts and labor. Uh, guys, getting back to the idea of this indie labels and putting out putting out bands like this, it's possible because if you if, if you do it within certain constraints, budget limitations. I think uh, you've made three albums now, and the total cost of those three albums has got to be what, uh, not even ten thousand dollars, I would imagine. Yeah, somewhere in that. Maybe approaching that total. Maybe. Um, total not for three maybe. albums. For three records. Yeah probably under 10,000 for those three records. I mean, we do, especially with Mapmaker, we recorded all the electronics and vocals at home um, just on my Pro Tools rig in my mm -hmm. windowless mm -hmm. bedroom um, and then brought it back into the studio where we had recorded the drums for mixing. We also, when we're in the studio, kind of work at this insane breakneck pace and uh, <laughs> basically make the engineers go completely insane. Like we recorded Stay Afraid, recorded and mixed Stay Afraid in, what was it? Nine, nine days? Nine days, something like that. Yeah, I, I think we ended up playing the songs faster because we had so, <laughs> we, we had to work so fast done. because we didn't have enough money to stay in there for any longer. We were working like 15-hour days and just like layering all our stuff over us. Well, would you like to have more time and a bigger budget and, and, and time to sort of experiment with different sounds? Yes, but I think we've, we've hit on a good method here where we, uh, we record, we pay somebody who knows what they're doing to record drums and guitar and bass, and the electronics especially, and then the vocals, we can do ourselves at home and take as long as we need. Um, it's, it's a pretty good system, and I think we're going to stick with it for the next record. But you, we're also very attentive to detail, and we kind of tend to get a little bit too particular, so it's kind of good to limit the amount of time that we spend on anything. Yeah. You can, mm. you can <laughs> mess up a song if you mix it too many times. You can and overcook something. Exactly, yeah. and it's good to have the immediacy there. So, uh, you know, we kind of like cranking it out as fast as possible, and, you know, that letting some mistakes slide is kind of part of what we do. It kind of humanizes the whole endeavor. BJ Warshaw, Dan Friel, Chris Weingarten, thank you so much, Parts and Labor, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, guys. I hope you don't meet anybody weird from Idaho on the way home. <laughs> Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, three great songwriters, all given posthumous release treatment in recent weeks. We're going to document the new collections from Nick Drake, Elliot Smith, and Jeff Buckley.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'll fake it through the day with some help from Johnny Walker Red with a cold pain behind my eyes and shoots back through my head with two tickets torn in half and a lot and nothing to do but it's all right cause some enchanted night I'll be That is a little bit of the demo recording for a song called Miss Misery uh, by Elliot Smith. You may uh, have first heard him performing that song in 1998 at the Academy Awards. Uh, it was featured in Goodwill Hunting. Uh, poor Elliot, he lost out that night to uh, that awful song from Titanic, but he was introduced to a wider audience and, uh, uh, and, and bigger popularity before his untimely death. Greg, we're going to deal with three of these indie heroes who have new posthumous releases, Elliot Smith, Jeff Buckley, and Nick Drake, who are vying to become uh, what Tupac Shakur is in the hip-hop world. Mm -hmm. There is a veritable dead Tupac industry. This is nothing new. Artists die, and they continue to release albums for years and years and years. You go to the record store bins, how are there 40 Jimi Hendrix records, (laughs) you know? I mean, indie rock is not being accepted. Even a guy like Smith, who was a very low-key, very underground, uh, very understated singer-songwriter, I think everything always came from the Beatles with him. It was all from, like, the Julia mode, uh, uh, John Lennon, the quiet acoustic-picking Beatles. Sometimes he'd get a little more rambunctious, but very introspective. He died untimely at age 34, uh, it has still not been ruled whether the 2003 death was a, a homicide or a suicide. There were multiple stab wounds to his chest. A lot of mystery surrounds that. And uh, now we have this new release. In his lifetime, he released five albums. There's already been one posthumous disc from a basement on the hill. And now we have this new disc called New Moon. Let's uh, hear a song from it. We're going to review these one at a time. This is uh, the tune High Times by Elliot Smith. I went to meet you at Central Square And I couldn't find you there I went walking around the city some more People watching with a cold blank stare And I saw your face And everyone I swear Seems I never catch your kick quite right I was walking slow to a dirty Trying to change your mind was so easy to disconnect my high times, high times, high times. Man, I feel fine. High times from Elliot Smith, uh, one of uh, 24 rare or previously unreleased tracks that have been compiled in this album called New Moon. This is interesting stuff. It, it documents a period in Smith's life when he was making the transition from being a singer in the band Heat Miser, Portland indie rock band, into this uh, introspective singer-songwriter, 1994 through 1997. Really a, a fertile 
time period for him as a songwriter. You can really see his growth as a songwriter. You know, Jim, it's interesting to me. Some people have described this as kind of a lo-fi basement tapes type of document of his uh, demos. And yeah. I think that kind of underrates it in a lot of ways because these, these recordings are very well done, I think, yeah. immaculately recorded. And his voice is very clear and upfront. They're very stripped down recordings. They sound very much the same in terms of the instrumentation being kind of... Uh, pretty narrow focused but uh, the songwriting is is top notch and the performances are top notch no absolutely he was working with his friend uh, Larry Crane who helped him record these songs and Crane has gone on to archive them and put this together a theme through all of these three reviews we're going to do is to what extent is the music we're hearing something that the artist would have liked to have released you know and and I think that with Elliot Smith it's the clearest of any of these three records that these are songs he'd have been proud to have come out at some point mm-hmm. and to that extent I'm happy to hear them and I think it does add to his legacy you know on our buy it burn it trash it scale this is definitely uh, for fans of Elliot Smith for fans of, of great melodic singing and songwriting it's a buy it record yeah my initial inclination was well it's too much I mean if it was unreleased why why is there so much of it now but I have to say that the quality of the songwriting is really good, and the performances are top-notch. I, I don't feel like any of this was sort of dredged up and, and sort of foisted on the public as some, you know, get-rich-quick scheme, which I can say about tons of Hendrix recordings, tons of Elvis Presley recordings, tons of Tupac Shakur recordings. That's not the case with this record, though. It's definitely a buy-it record. It's a relatively rare version of So Real, a recording that Jeff Buckley did and has surfaced on his uh, collection of Jeff Buckley songs, So Real. Uh, Basically a greatest hits collection of Buckley's music. Buckley uh, drowned in the Mississippi in 1997 at the age of 30 while recording his second album. So get this, the guy recorded basically one album in his lifetime. One EP, one album. One EP, and was in the midst of recording his second record. Tragically died at age 30. Um, since his death in 97, there have been no less than six Jeff Buckley albums released. <laughs> He's winning the Tupac contest He so is far. right up there with Tupac in terms of number of releases per year after his death. Two live albums, a collection of early demos, an expanded version of the first EP, an expanded version of Grace, his one true studio record. And now we have So Real, Songs from Jeff Buckley, a de facto greatest hits collection. Let's listen to the one true rarity on this record. It's a cover of the Smith song, I Know It's Over, on Sound Opinions. Oh, mother, I can feel the soil falling over my head. As I climb into an empty bed Oh well Enough said I know it's over Still I cling I don't know where else I can go There you have Jeff Buckley channeling Morrissey covering the Smiths. I know it's over. Greg, I don't think Buckley was this great interpretive 
artist uh, who, who brought something great to covers uh, that some people hear. People always talk about his version of Leonard Cohen's Alleluia as being the definitive one. I will take both Cohen's and uh, John Cale's over Buckley's. He was sometimes way too over the top for my taste. I think uh, he doesn't bring anything new to Morrissey's reading of that Smith's tune. And there's nothing new on So Real. Uh, eight of the ten songs from Grace, his one and only album in 94, are here in slightly different versions. There is nothing here except sticking your hand into the pocket of, of a worshipful audience to take more money for them for the same music that they've heard. This is just blatant greed. Yeah, it's a money grab. There should be a rule, Jim. If you release one album in your lifetime, you should not be allowed to have a greatest hits collection. This is true. <laughs> I mean, it's just a rule, okay? That's this is what true. Je- Jeff Buckley has violated that rule, or his estate has. And I think uh, Buckley, frankly, would be embarrassed. I don't think he ever achieved his potential in the studio. I think uh, Jeff Buckley was a mesmerizing live performer, and I can attest to this having seen him about a dozen times. But unfortunately, I don't think there's a record out there that's really going to capture what Jeff Buckley was about, and that's the real tragedy about it. Uh, the, the man died at 30, and the people who never got to see him in the flesh missed out, uh, frankly. Uh, these records just don't do him justice, and this certainly doesn't. So it's a double trash it? Double trash it. We got one left. Nick Drake uh, out with another posthumous album. It's called Family Tree. It's actually coming out in a few weeks. Let's hear a little track from it, and then we'll talk about it. This is uh, Drake performing an old blues song by Blind Boy Fuller called My Baby's So Sweet. A lot of this is uh, Drake playing with his acoustic guitar and singing in front of a reel-to-reel tape recorder at his home in Far Lays, in Tanworth, in Arden, in merry old England, which sounds idyllic, and let's hear if it holds up to that. Yes, mama, yes, girl, yeah, me calling you. So sweet, so sweet, my sugar, so sweet. My baby, don't you go, it's see my little sugar go home. So sweet, so sweet, my sugar, so sweet. But my baby, she didn't gone. Oh, I thought I was treating her right, must have been doing her wrong. So sweet, so sweet, my sugar, so sweet. Nick Drake uh, covering Blind Boy Fuller. I have to say, Jim, I was surprised by what I heard on Family Tree. Uh, There's this impression of Nick Drake as this morose, depressed, suicidal young Mm -hmm. man. By the time he was making his third record, I mean, they were very quiet and very somber beautiful at the same time, but you, you had this impression of Nick Drake as, as a particular type of artist. And I think what these home demos, uh, which were taken from the period before he even started recording officially with Joe Boyd, former guest on Sound Opinions, by the way, uh, indicate to me, here was an artist with an incredible curiosity about music. Yeah. I mean, we have classical music on it. We have him playing clarinet on a song yeah. on, this, on this recording. A remarkable uh, vocabulary in jazz and blues as evidence there. Uh, the finger picking is uh, immaculate and really uh, sophisticated for a teenager. He covers a Burt Yonch tune, which illustrates this line. Where did Drake fit in between rock and orchestral pop and the early English folk stuff? Here you see before he did the studio albums and the orchestral thing, he was doing acoustic, but he was upbeat as opposed to downbeat at the end of his life. 
for historical interest, this fills in some gaps of, of this singer who died in 74, way before his time. Here you have some stuff that really is voyeuristic. You know, there were two tracks uh, by his mother. I don't need to hear Nick Drake's mom. I can't view Family Tree as a proper album, Greg. I think there are moments that are great, like the Yanch cover, the Dylan cover, Tomorrow's a Long Time, but it doesn't hold together like a record that Drake would have released in his lifetime. I'm let down. As a major Nick Drake fan, I'd have to say burn the few moments and and skip the rest. Well, I I don't think it's the place to start. For somebody who's wondering what Nick Drake's about, you know, send him right to the three studio records. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. clearly the, the artist there. But I think as a window into his formation, uh, as into his working methods, and into the type of personality he is, this gave me a lot of insight that I did not have previously. And the fact that these recordings were pretty much unknown and undiscovered until now, it, it, I think it's a major find that this stuff is coming out. So I'm going to say, if you're a Nick Drake fan, I think you need to go out and buy this. Hmm. Quick recap of our trio of posthumous releases. I said buy the Elliott Smith, trash the Jeff Buckley, and uh, burn the best moments on Nick Drake. How did you rate him? I said buy it for the Smith and the Drake and trash it for the Buckley. All right, what do we got next week on the show? Next week, Jim, you and I and the listeners are going to look at the best cover songs of all time. We're looking for songs that bettered the original version, and there are some out there. Greg, Mary Gaffney, and Sarah Toulouse recorded Parts and Labor for us. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And Tori Southside Malatia is our executive producer, fearless leader, and uh, apparently still nursing his uh, headache from the Parts and Labor show. But he's a good sport. In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here's a record we reviewed on Sound Opinions. is calling down an alien invasion. (laughs) She wants a shower of goodness that will end up grinding the skeptics into the soil. Basically kind of a state-of-the-world message from Bjork, uh, the Icelandic pixie. Uh, She's a piece of work. Um, (laughs) She's intentionally trying to have us look at her and say, boy, ain't she weird. For me, this is a not only a trash it record, it's a give it away and don't even be in the same neighborhood well, as it record. Well, I'm in the burn it category, Jim. There's three or four songs on here that I do want to hear again. Unfortunately, that's not a full album's worth. It's got to be a, a burn it for me as opposed to a buy it. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, this message is for Jim about the Bjork review. Um, I'm looking for some challenging listening uh, lately. Uh, the Battles was a good um, recommendation, as was the uh, Anti-Ballas a couple weeks ago. And uh, if Jim doesn't want his copy of the New York record, I'm a little short on funds, and I'd love for him to send it to me. My name's Stephen. I'm calling from San Francisco, California. Thanks, and uh, keep up the good work on the show. I appreciate it. Hello, boys. My name is Hamid. I'm calling you from a very, very long distance. I'm calling you from Tehran, Iran. 
I enjoy your shows, and um, I listen to them from uh, your podcasts. Keep up the excellent work. I learned a lot. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Kathy Goff from Arlington Heights. My kids and I listen to your show pretty much every Saturday morning in the car. And uh, you had a fan who wanted music for him and his kids and a band that we love and now our kids also love is They Might Be Giants. Old, new, pretty much all of it. Istanbul, Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone, Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Because it's quirky and intelligent, and I love your show, thanks. Istanbul, Istanbul, even old New York, was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. You just liked it better that way. Istanbul is Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. The Constantinople, been a long time gone. The Constantinople, why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Istanbul. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Drew calling from Perth, Australia. Um, I just listened to your podcast from the last week, and I'm so glad that you guys are uh, playing such good music. Um, that is Wilco. But also I wanted to talk about the fact that I'm really glad that someone in the U.S. is talking about the Eurovision Song Contest. can't just talk about the music. You've got to actually see the show. It's just unbelievably kitschy and funny and cheesy. And I really, really challenge you guys to watch this show and also to watch a show from about 1983 and try to work out which music is from what era because I swear to God, they're stuck there, a lot of it. Anyway, thanks for putting the music out there and uh, appreciate the show. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.